0: Welcome to Scuttlebutt and a Cup of Joe. I'm your host, Trisha Menke. Today, we are taking to the skies with Dina Lynn, the museum curator at the National Naval Aviation Museum. The National Naval Aviation Museum is one of the official department of the Navy museums. They're located in Pensacola, Florida, and they are by far the largest of the Navy museums and arguably holders of the coolest artifacts. Welcome, Dina. Thank you, Trisha. It's a pleasure to be here with you. Dina, 2022 is a big year for you at the Naval Aviation Museum because it is the centennial year of the aircraft carrier. What are you guys doing to mark this big milestone?
1: Uh, it is an exciting year for us here in Pensacola and for the Navy overall, and for 2022, we have several special events planned to celebrate the centennial of the aircraft carrier. So the first thing that we are doing is a special exhibit on our Nimitz flight deck out uh, adjacent to the quarter deck at the museum herself. And that exhibit, which we'll talk about later on, has some very special artifacts in it, some things people have not been able to see before in our collection, and what we tell some special stories there. We're also going to be doing some specialized tours throughout the museum as part of our educational outreach. And so we don't tell the story of the carrier in just one spot, we tell that history throughout the museum. And the tour itself will just highlight those stories that are already in place that people might not be aware of. Um, And the, the third thing that we're doing Our special pop-up exhibits uh, as well throughout the museum, primarily on the Cabot flight deck, which is our World War II era flight deck. The actual planks from that carrier are here in our museum. So those are the three main outreach events that we're doing to commemorate the centennial. That sounds great. I definitely want to dive more into the exhibit and
0: the making of that exhibit a little bit later. But first, can you take us back 100 years ago? Um, why did the Navy, obviously a sea-based service, why did they introduce aircraft carriers in 1922?
1: Sure. Um, so the Navy first started to utilize aircraft carriers because they wanted a method for scouting um, and to use um to supplement the capital ships of the day. So primarily back in the 1922, those would have been your battleships, your heavy cruisers um, and the aircraft carriers were to supplement the missions of those vessels. So um, that's how the Navy got involved. And um, it, it evolved from, from that purpose into, uh, primarily carrying aircraft in order to drop bombs and torpedoes in areas where we really didn't have a, a ground presence where there wasn't an airport. And so they, they developed these floating airports, if you will. That's what a carrier is. An aircraft carrier is like a floating airport, floating city. Um, and it just enabled our Navy to expand our footprint around the world. Let's dive into that
0: a little bit more. How does the aircraft carrier, these floating aircrafts, how do or floating airports, I should say, how do they change the Navy?
1: Sure. Um, so I think the the biggest way that the aircraft carrier changed how the Navy operates is is pretty much what I what I said before is that the the capital ships morphed from being the battleships and the heavy cruisers to being the aircraft carrier because they were so flexible and because they could carry these aircraft and um, you know complete missions where the navy couldn't have thought that these missions were possible any in any other era um, and. So So it morphed into the aircraft carrier being the primary um, instead of just a support vessel. And now the battleships and heavy cruisers had the opportunity to take on different roles, whereas they could bombard shore installations uh, and protect the aircraft carriers um, sort of in that reciprocal role there. And this is just for the sake of our listeners. This is all pre-Air Force, right? Yes, this is pre-Air Force. Um, and, and to this day, the aircraft carrier is what makes naval aviation so special and so different from the other services that we have that do operate aircraft, because as we know, the Air Force um, operates aircraft, even the Army, U.S. Army has still has an aircraft aircraft aviation component, um, and the Coast Guard is part of naval aviation. So that is still the the highlight of naval aviation is the aircraft carrier. It's what really sets us apart and what allows us to carry out that mission, humanitarian efforts, um, you know, active military support. It's a wonderful thing. Very unique. Mm I could be way off
0: here, but I imagine our current or modern day sailors might be a little surprised if they stepped foot on the very first aircraft carrier, the USS Langley. How was that different than today's aircraft carrier?
1: yes uh, they they definitely would they might uh, wonder if they were even on an aircraft carrier at all because they looked so different um, the first aircraft carrier was USS Langley and it was actually converted from its original use as a collier vessel which was called the USS Jupiter so they removed the upper structure of that ship and they added a flat wooden deck um, there's something called an elevator on all aircraft carriers and in the case case of the Langley, they had a single elevator, which just allows aircraft to be lowered um, below the flight deck for maintenance or to be raised up to the flight deck to take off. So that was different. Um, And so the Langley was in that configuration for for many years, and then by 1937, carriers became uh, much larger, and they were being built for that specific purpose as opposed to being modified. And uh, Langley was converted to a seaplane tender, and uh, then by 1942, she was finally scuttled after she was damaged by Japanese aircraft during the war. So um, yes, there's a lot of differences. What size crew would Langley have had? So Langley would have carried about 36 aircraft total, and there were about 430, 435 officers and enlisted personnel on that aircraft carrier. And and just to put it in stark contrast from today's carriers, um, our carriers today are over twice the length. They're uh, twice as fast, and they're about eight times heavier than the Langley was. Um, and also today, we're, we have new nuclear powered aircraft carrier, so they look use nuclear energy as a primary source of power as opposed to um, coal or steam. They've changed a lot in all the
0: last 100 years. Yes. Do you have yep. any artifacts on display from the Langley
1: in the new exhibit? Um, we do we have a few um, artifacts on display we have a model of the USS Langley but we have um, other artifacts on display in the new exhibit um, that I can talk about now or we can talk about those later or um, however you're listening Uh, okay so one of our most um, exciting exhibits one of our most exciting displays is on Bob Hope the legendary comedian and entertainer and um, most people um, will recognize that name, but for our younger listeners, um, they might not. And so Bob Hope um, was instrumental in maintaining and promoting morale among military servicemen and women uh, for a career spanning over 70 years, and he was very dedicated. The military, um, particularly the US Navy, the US Army. And we had several commemorations aboard aircraft carriers where Bob Hope was instrumental in entertaining the troops. And so our museum is one of a handful around the country that was honored to receive a transfer of artifacts from the Bob Hope Foundation through World Golf Hall of Fame. And um, these artifacts, um, they range from Bob Hope's one of his robes, his Army or Go Navy Beat Army robe. Um, And we have a a ring that he wore when he was um, flying with the Blue Angels as an honorary naval aviator and honorary boss, uh, flight leader of the Blue Angels. So he's one of a handful of people in history who received both of those designations. Um, And the exhibit includes some of the pieces that he received as gifts from servicemen and women all over the world. So we have a tiki uh, Bob Hope statue that he received from military personnel stationed in Hawaii, um, a top hat that he received from one of our Naval Aviation Squadrons. So there are a lot of interesting um, artifacts on display that we have that you might not see anywhere else um, that pertain to Bob Hope and his support of the military. I swear you guys get all of the cool stuff down there in
0: Pensacola. <laughs> when you were yeah. working on the new exhibit, what were some of the things that you found most interesting? Like the Bob Hope is a good example, but are there other elements of the early years of the aircraft carrier that really stuck with you as you were
1: doing research? Sure. Um, I think there's no way that you can conduct research on this topic and read about it and not be in absolute awe the courage and the ingenuity that it took naval aviators to even think of this concept, let alone execute it. I mean, if you think about the skill that it takes to take off from this floating airport, like we said, um, sometimes under less than ideal conditions, and to actually land on it. The only thing um, preventing you from flying off into the ocean is that tail hook behind your aircraft that hooks onto a wire on the aircraft carrier deck. And that's what saves you. That's called making a trap. You um, That is what stops the aircraft from flying off into the ocean. And so even just to think about that as a civilian, um, it is very humbling. It's um, You have a lot of respect for these naval aviators now and in the past um, to appreciate the sacrifice and the skill and um, their courage that they take uh, that you take on to yourself when you become an able aviator when you earn those wings of gold you are definitely earning them uh, in every sense of the word but that's that's what I took away from this research um, is just a respect for the past and an ongoing respect for current operations. Yeah, I mean, hearing you talk
0: about it, it, it brings that out in me, too. Like, it, That's an amazing amount of courage, as you say, that they would have had. And especially if we keep in mind, this is still relatively early in the history of aviation in general. These are not people who yes. are as used to flying as we are today. This is still a relatively
1: new mode of transportation. So I, I can't yeah. even imagine. So what I want to touch on, too, for your listeners is... This statistic always blows my mind. So 1919, again, you know, naval aviation is a very early, it's a very new concept. And the Navy um, had the NC-4 expedition where um, we had the transatlantic flight. The Navy sent her NC flying boats across. Um, It was the first time anyone had ever attempted that. It was obviously before Lindbergh had attempted his, but it was a very successful mission. And 50 years later, in 1969, we have a, a man walking on the moon who was also a naval aviator. It was Neil Armstrong. So the first man to walk on the moon and the last man to walk on the moon were both naval aviators. But I look at that and you go, wow out in 50 years. We went from it being this huge achievement to cross the Atlantic Ocean in an aircraft to walking on the moon. And it, it just it takes your breath away. It does. And that's one thing,
0: too, for our listeners sake, if you have an opportunity to go and visit the museum down there in Pensacola, they also have um, at least one exhibit, if not maybe a couple about um, naval aviators who went to space like Neil Armstrong. And it's an amazing connection there. And you can see that these primarily men at this time who got their wings with the Navy then start going to that final frontier in space. Yes. Yes. I'm going to go back to um, your aircraft carrier exhibit. Um, One of the things that I find most difficult when I'm working on an exhibit is editing. (laughs) We do so much research for exhibits that There is inevitably a lot of information that gets left on the cutting room floor. Are there any stories that you found in your research that you thought, oh, I wish we could put this in here, but we just don't have the space or maybe it can go on a tour? Was there
1: anything that you had to leave out? Sure. Um, So we again, you know, you want to tell all the stories and we have over 32,000 objects in our artifact collection alone, not even counting our archival holdings here at the museum. So there are so many stories and so many objects tell layered stories. Um, And for this exhibit, initially, you know, we have installed just two large artifact cases with multiple stories. And each one, and the exhibit itself isn't even finished yet, we still have um, a virtual reality component that we're installing later this year, which will be really exciting with sound and it'll feel like you're actually on an aircraft carrier, um, which is the most dangerous job in the world. Um, but but I think, um, you know, of all the stories that we, we tried to include and we didn't, um, we have tried to spread those stories out throughout the museum carrier deck itself. And so we do have one story. There was a family, um, two brothers, both serving in the Navy. They purchased a globe for their mother so that anytime they wrote her a letter, she could look at the globe and look in the Atlas and see where her boys were and feel connected to them. And, um, and that story was really powerful. And, and they're friends that were in naval aviation. And, and there were a lot of moving parts to it. Um, for us, we just didn't have room to tell all of those stories. And so hopefully that's the kind of story that we. We can feature on um, a virtual exhibit, or we can use them on one of those pop-up exhibits that I was talking about earlier.
0: Yeah, those are also good opportunities for social media. You know, our museum is doing a lot of that, too, is we have so many individual stories that you want to tell. And there are so many thousands and thousands of people who have come through the Navy that we can't tell every single story. But um, social media or pop up exhibits or virtual exhibits are all really good places for us to include those. Um, what were some of the other sources that you were looking at as you were doing research and um, putting this together and i should say too that this is
1: not you on your own this is your whole team down there correct correct and thank you for bringing that up yes we do all of our exhibits we create all of our exhibits in-house here in pensacola which means we don't contract out any part of the process so the men uh, and women who you know actually physically build the structures sometimes Uh, building our exhibit cases from scratch Um, that all happens here and uh, the storylines the artifacts that we select the visitor outcome things we want people to learn that all comes from in-house as well so we have a weekly exhibits team meeting um, and that's where these ideas come to fruition and and it's really a wonderful area uh, venue for brainstorming but but as far as Primary sources go. We are blessed to have a very thorough research library and archive here in Pensacola, and our collection includes things that cannot be found anywhere else. In many cases, including the um, library and archive at the Navy Yard, and so we have a lot of firsthand accounts of life on board aircraft carriers via personal letters, um, personal papers that we've collected, logbooks that document, um, you know, traps on board aircraft carriers where people were at any given date and time on any given vessel and down to the bureau number of the aircraft that they were flying. And so um, those are all primary sources that we use here at the museum. We really take advantage of the the firsthand accounts that we can find. Um, We also use unit reports, um, squadron reports, that kind of thing. Um, We have a wonderful photograph collection. Uh, And we do use other resources, too, from other repositories. National Archives has a wonderful collection, the Library of Congress. Um, We we try to use as many primary sources as we can when we uh, create an exhibit. Last thing I want to ask
0: you about before we get off the topic of aircraft carriers specifically, um, how is, what's it like, I know that you're a civilian, but what is it like to serve aboard an aircraft carrier today? How many aircraft carriers do we have? Um, What is that? What is that like? We said it's like a city, but can you give us some more detail about
1: that? Sure. Um, so the, the Navy currently has about 20 aircraft carriers in service. Um, 11 of those are fleet carriers, which means they're designed to carry um, fixed wing aircraft, uh, which are um, most uh, aircraft that you see here in the museum. The other nine aircraft carriers are designed to carry helicopters, uh, helicopter aircraft. And um, some of those examples would be like the AV-8 carrier. uh, And the F-35 Lightning would be those kinds of aircraft. Um, But essentially, an aircraft carrier is very large. I mean, it's an an extremely large vessel. It takes a lot of power to operate it. Um, Everybody has a role on that aircraft carrier from the mail clerk to the man or woman who is flying that fighter jet. And each of those roles is equally important. Um, and so just like with any Navy vessel, if one piece of that orchestra is not playing the right tune, um, you're gonna have a problem. And so so I think the thing that strikes people when they visit an aircraft carrier, if you ever see footage of one on, on TV or online, is that everybody has a role to play and um, they all know that role very well. So safety is a huge consideration on an aircraft carrier. Um, uh, just knowing what color shirt someone is wearing will tell you what team they're on, whether they're aircraft maintenance, whether they're um, you know, on the receiving team, but what have you. Um, but that's the main thing to take away from modern aircraft carrier operations is that it's very complex. And, and those men and women, they make it look easy when it's not, it's very it's very dangerous, very complex and a very fulfilling job as well. They do, I've seen footage of it and they make it look so incredibly
0: easy. Uh, one. Thing that I wanted to, to touch on just a little bit more. You just mentioned it, but something that struck me when I first started here at Army Museum um, here at the National Museum of the American Sailor, our focus, our mission is to tell the story of the Navy's enlisted sailors. And prior to starting here, I didn't realize that all naval aviators, the pilots themselves, are all officers. Um, But that's not to say that there isn't a huge number of enlisted personnel who support those pilots. What are some of the enlisted personnel doing to support naval
1: aviation? Sure, that's a great question. And I think, you know, that's something that I didn't realize as well before I moved to Pensacola. Um, But prior to coming to this museum, I've been here for eight years now. um, I worked as a curator for the National Museum of the Marine Corps. And so there was some overlap there, obviously, with the Navy. Um, And here in Pensacola, we tell naval aviation story, which definitely includes the Marine Corps story. But I don't think even I knew that detail that all naval aviators are officers. Um, But what I want to point out is that enlisted personnel definitely serve a role in supporting the whole um, mission of naval aviation. And in some instances, uh, enlisted personnel have actually served as naval aviators, especially during World War II. Some people might not know that the Navy was so short of naval aviators that they started commissioning um, enlisted pilots. They're called NAPs. And um, they were flying our aircraft and they were helping to win the war. And so that That's a huge story that we tell here in the museum on our second deck. We're very proud of our NAPs and their families are very proud of them too. Um, But as far as enlisted personnel go in general, all the aviation um, maintenance, enlisted personnel, all of the men and women you see on the flight deck, um, a lot of them are enlisted personnel, the landing signal officers trying to help land those aircrafts and help people take off safely. Um, you know, you just could not run a naval uh, aircraft carrier without enlisted personnel. And then at the museum, um, especially over the past eight years, we've been striving to tell their stories, uh, the personal stories of these men and women here in the museum. So it's not just catered to officers or to the naval aviators themselves. It's their family story. It's the enlisted personnel story um, that we we really try to highlight to appeal to everyone. It's true. It really takes
0: a village. And that's it's an easy phrase to say, but uh, for. For me as a civilian, and I think it sounds like for you as well, until I got to the Navy, I didn't realize just how large that village is and how many roles there are. Um, You think, oh, sailors, okay, simple. No, there's so much that goes into it, especially when we're talking about um, ships like aircraft carriers that are these huge floating cities. It takes more people than I could ever have imagined.
1: Yes, yeah, that, that's that's exactly correct. Um, and the other thing I would say is as large as the Navy is and as many people that it takes to make this um, mission successful, I will say that Naval aviation in general is a very um, small community in the way that everything is related and everyone is connected. And I'm always struck by that, that it's a very um, patriotic, very close knit community in that sense. Um, and I, I'm just struck by that we have multiple families that have served um, in naval aviation. Some families, we have four generations of naval aviators and um, support personnel who've been there since the very early days. Um, So so we're really proud of that and that legacy that they carry on because they are proud of being naval aviators and, and naval aviation personnel.
0: That's something I've noticed, too. The aviators are a very tight-knit group, and I think that's, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that's one of the reasons why your museum is so successful. The support of the naval aviation community, um, these folks wanting to donate artifacts to your collection, wanting to tell their stories, wanting to make sure the museum really succeeds to tell those stories.
1: Yes, that, that is um, an accurate assessment, and, and I've seen that too, and actually it reminds me a lot of the National Museum of the Marine Corps, because we all know that Marines are very respectful of their history, and every Marine can tell you the Marine Corps birthday, and that is such a close-knit community, and, and here in Pensacola, it is exactly like that. Um, they're very passionate about their history. They want to share it with other people, and this museum was founded in the 1960s by World War II veterans, and, you know, in speaking with our deputy director, he gave me probably the best advice I ever received and it was that when you see someone don't look at them just as they appear now but as they once were and he meant you know you can walk around this place and you see our volunteers and you see uh, people that work here, and you see them as they are now. But don't ever forget that that volunteer sitting next to you, he might have been, um, you know, a survivor of Pearl Harbor, this would have been years ago, or he could have been at the Battle of Midway. Um, Because when our deputy director first started here in the 1990s, that's who he was walking next to. I mean, we walk among giants, and we don't even know it. And I still think of that today because we have these men and women serving so valiantly on aircraft carriers and around the world in naval, avi- naval aviation operations. And that pretty much goes for anybody in the military that has served. Um, we just don't know what story they, they hold in their hearts. And so um, on some level, you know, the, the greatest gift that we can give back is to tell those stories accurately. And the museum provides a wonderful canvas in order to do that. And so, so I just think of that, um, all these stories that we strive to tell and um, all these men and women that have made such an impact in naval aviation, it's responsibility to give back to them to tell their stories accurately. I think that's amazing advice. That's something I'm going to remember as well. It's it's so true.
0: I think at all of our museums, we have that. We have such wonderful volunteers who oftentimes are veterans, um, even visitors who are often veterans, and you have no idea what they've experienced until they start talking. Um, one other thing I want to move on to, Dina, um, kind of broadening our scope from the aircraft carriers themselves, let's talk a little bit more about the museum. You obviously work with the collection and I think that you have one of the most interesting collections of all, namely because you have the largest artifacts in the entire command. Um, what is that like to care for macro artifacts? <laughs>
1: Sure. Um, So I always tell people it is an excellent lesson in job security because we will always be caring for these artifacts. As we know, as federal curators, we must care for our collections in perpetuity according to federal law. uh, When it comes to aircraft, they present a different set of um, joys and challenges, as I would call it. So um, you have these large macro artifacts that require um, constant maintenance uh, while balancing that with um, preservation. So preservation of original paint um, original tires original um, pieces on the aircraft and how do you um, balance that when something becomes so degraded um, you ask yourself is is it correct to replace it and thereby help preserve the structure of the aircraft? Or in replacing it, would you damage the provenance, the history behind that aircraft? And so that's something that we, um, and I think all curators um, think about uh, because it is an important um, part of our jobs. But here in Pensacola, we have an extra set of challenges because we're located right next to the Pensacola Bay. Uh, We have that love Least saltwater air, um, which is not really conducive to preservation. Um, most of the Navy's stricken aircraft are actually out in uh, Arizona at the boneyard. And that location was chosen because of the dry air and the lack of humidity out west. Um, but here in Pensacola, we have a wonderful team in our aircraft restoration and preservation department. And that's all they do all day, every day, is they review our aircraft, perform conditional reports, um, they restore aircraft, they research which pieces of That aircraft are uh, original, which ones aren't, to take pictures. um, And and that's really a huge part of our collection. I would say obviously the largest aircraft that we have here. Um, And that's just one part of the story and how we care for those aircraft and what makes them so different from smaller artifacts that in some ways are easier to take care of, uh, but they're not as striking visually. Do you have a favorite artifact in your collection? Whether it's an aircraft or a piece of or an airplane or something different. I do, Um, I have several favorite artifacts at the museum and actually uh, one of our outreach events we do every year is called Breakfast in a Movie where we invite the snowbirds down. And it's a series of four presentations we give um, while they're eating their Chick-fil-A in our theater, We, we give them a talk. And so one of the talks was on our favorites. I picked three favorite artifacts, but I'm only gonna share one with you today. And it's something that someone would never expect to find. In a museum based on naval aviation, um, it's actually a refrigerator that we have here in the museum, and and the layers of um, the story behind this object are, are just fascinating. So, um, the the killer cooler, as it's called, K O O L E R, was effectively a piece of trench art that lived in the ready room aboard. USS Saratoga during World War II. And um, for those who are familiar with trench art, you know, it's this piece of art that um, our military would use to either document a battle record or um, put some kind of design on it, something to commemorate their wartime experiences, a diary of sorts, but in a unique uh, method. So this refrigerator was actually a Kelvinator icebox, and um, it was decorated with the squadron's BF-34's battle record, so it had paintings on there of all the vessels that the squadron had downed or sunk. um, All the aircraft, um, actually, all the men of the squadron were listed on either side, the officers and the enlisted. And it's just very special. I mean, something that you wouldn't expect to find in the National Naval Aviation Museum. But what makes the story even more interesting is that the Saratoga was attacked uh, by a kamikaze aircraft in February of 1945. And during the attack, a piece of shrapnel penetrated the ready room and became embedded in the refrigerator. So the men who revered this fridge said that she earned the Purple Heart um, for her service in World War II. And I thought that was very entertaining as well. So we have this giant icebox in our museum, and obviously it's a conversation piece because people wonder what it's doing here. But the second part of the story that makes it so special is that the uh, commanding officer of BF-34 was Robert Conrad, and his wife, Aide Conrad, Aide Henderson Conrad, had been married once before to Lofton Henderson of World War II Marine Corps fame, and um, and and it just speaks to the layers. Um, and like I said earlier, how naval aviation is such a small and how people have so many stories in their hearts that you don't you'd never know. So um, Robert Conrad's daughter, Robin, is the donor of the fridge. And when she first came to the museum, I knew nothing about her mother's first husband um, until we had been talking for about two Hours, and then she shared the story with me. And so when I look at that fridge, I don't just think of BF-34 and art and, you know, this wonderful artifact that we have that survived all these years and is in excellent shape. I think of Robin's family um, and the story of her mother and the two men that she loved. I think that's great. That's a great favorite artifact. <laughs> I love that
0: one. Is that Long on story. Yeah. Long story. <laughs> is that on display? So if
1: our listeners go and visit the museum, they'll be able to see that one? Yes. Our killer cooler is on display on the World War II Cabot flight deck for anyone to to see. And you can get your picture taken with her. And uh, it is definitely, like I said, a conversation piece. You can't miss it. You wonder why is there a refrigerator? And, and now you know that we have one. I love it. Uh, One of the last things I wanted to ask you about, I was actually
0: able to visit the museum a few years ago before the pandemic ground all of our travel to a halt. Um, And one thing that I noticed while I was there is how closely the Naval Aviation Museum works with the student naval aviators who are stationed at Pensacola. How do the students um, support the work that the museum is doing?
1: Sure, that's a great question. Uh, we are very proud to have a large contingent of volunteer ensigns here at the museum. And the ensigns are stationed on board NAS Pensacola while they're waiting to class up, while they're waiting to actually begin the next phase of their training as naval aviators. And so our director, Captain Sterling Gillum, had a wonderful idea to utilize this pool of eager young labor to help us at our museum, especially um, you know it, giving them an opportunity to learn learn more about their own history, um, something they can use during their careers, and also um, have them, you know, complete fulfillment work while they're just waiting to begin training and so uh, we have a a contingent that changes every so often depending on their um, schedules and they come and help us with everything from exhibit design and construction to ops maintenance i mean they can be out there you know um, replanting grass power washing the building or they could be in the back helping us with a collection uh, reviewing accession files conducting inventory with our collection staff. Um, they also do a lot of work with our visitors. They work at the front desk, they, they check IDs. Um, we really utilize their services, especially during uh, the COVID pandemic when the museum was open, um, but we had restrictions based on telework um, and other things. The ensigns really, really stepped in and helped us out. Um, and we have over 300 volunteers in our regular grouping of uh, helpers here at the museum. And, and again, they help in every department. And that's something that is wonderful
0: for our visitors is that when they're able to come to the museum they can interact with either current ensigns or veterans. It really gives a another dimension to visiting the museum because you can talk to somebody who has experienced it or is going through that training right now. It adds that extra layer that you don't necessarily get
1: um, at a different museum. So I I would completely agree with that statement, Um, and it's always nice when we can introduce older veterans to our young ensigns. It's it's fulfilling. um, It's a fulfilling meeting for both parties. I think Um, we just um, lost Mr. Dick Pace, who was one of our World were two naval aviators. He passed a few months ago at the age of 102, but he came to our museum um, to film a few documentaries and programs. And while he was here, we made it a point to introduce him to as many young ensigns as possible so that they would meet this giant of a man. Like I said before, we walk among giants and don't even know it, um, and then it also cheered him to see these young naval aviators and, and to sort of speak to them about their own experiences and how much things have changed in the past 70 years, and so, um, yeah, and I think for our visitors, it's wonderful to see active duty personnel in uniform, you know, to, to see they are the living embodiment of the next generation of naval aviation, so you have a past with the present and the future all in one place.
0: Well, Scuttlebutters, if that doesn't get you to go down to Pensacola, if it's not the aircraft that are on display, the volunteers that you can interact with, there's so much to see down there. But there is one thing that really seals the deal. Um, I had no idea until I came to visit that the Blue Angels practice right outside the museum. And you can actually go watch one of their practices completely for free. Is that right, Dina?
1: That's correct, yep, that's correct. And um, our visitors might not know that all Navy museums are free to the public. Uh, We have 10 museums in the system and there's no charge to enter any of them because we take care of the artifacts on behalf of the American people. Um, But our Blue Angels do practice right next door at Forest Sherman Field. And so many people come to the museum, they park their car, they walk down to the flight line. We have bleachers there, we have refreshments, lots of volunteers, like we mentioned, uh, staffing that area. safety officers, it's a great place to bring the family, but you can watch the Blue Angels practice and you can um, hear the announcer uh, who will tell you what maneuvers they're doing and what you're actually witnessing in the sky and how, you know, what an amazing feat it is. We were talking earlier about just the awe that um, I, I feel when I read about early naval aviation operations. And I feel that same sense uh, when I'm watching the Blue Angels, because again, here's the present. This is how far we've come in a hundred years that the Navy has this incredible flight demonstration team that is renowned worldwide, the best ambassadors we could possibly have for naval aviation. Um, and it's a great tourist attraction and it's um, it's very exciting for people. So they come and watch the Blue Angels and then they come into the museum um, either to receive the Blue Angel autographs or just to walk around and just take it all in. All that history, um, it's an exciting day and we encourage people to come and visit us.
0: So it is now April of 2022 and we are hopefully winding down with the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, At this time, are our visitors able to come and see all of these wonderful things that you have at the National Naval Aviation Museum?
1: That's a wonderful question and and one that is very important to explain here to our visitors. So the answer is yes and no. Um, In 2019, there was uh, an active shooter situation on board Naval Air Station Pensacola. And because of that incident, the Secretary of the Navy rescinded the general waiver that was in place for visitation to the base. And so what that means is that before uh, anyone could enter the base, as long as you had a driver's license, you could just be waved on board the base to visit the lighthouse and the museum to see the Blue Angels, that kind of thing. When the waiver was rescinded, all that meant was that our base is now under the same security restrictions as every other active military base in the United States. But that is so disappointing for our visitors who are so used to just driving on board the base to enjoy the Blue Angel practices. So we are open, but by default, we're located on board Naval Air Station Pensacola. And so unless one has um, a person with an active Department of Defense military ID card um, to sponsor them, it is difficult for them to visit the museum by default. So we just wanna make sure that people understand that. We're very hopeful that um, shortly the museum, the base itself will open up um, restrictions Um, But we're here, the museum is here, we have a wonderful social media presence. Um, We encourage people to watch the Blue Angels. You can definitely still see them flying outside of the base. Um, We also are participating in the Trusted Traveler Program. So if someone is able um, to be sponsored by a person with the ID that I mentioned uh, before, that's Department of Defense ID, active military, uh, independent, veteran, retired military ID, then uh, they can escort up to 15 people. And so, so yes, open Um, and we just encourage people to you know find one of your friends with an active duty military id have them escort you onto the base Um, but we look forward to the day when there are no longer base restrictions
0: it's really important to note for everybody um, hopefully they'll be opened up again soon um, but like Dina said if you've got a friend a family member with a, a military ID ask them to get you in or like Dina mentioned check them out online um, one thing the pandemic has done for all of us is made us much more active online um, so either check out their website or check out their Facebook and other um, social media pages to see what's going on down in Pensacola
1: all right Dina thank, well, you. thank you so much thank you very for- match it was a pleasure and i hope to see you soon i hope so have a great day